the journey is finally complete. From the bottom to the top, Rangers are champions of Scotland. So much pressure on his shoulders. Not that you would ever guess it. A critical goal as Wickham try and try and chart away to an improbable second season in the championship. He's through the Hello and welcome to the Hopeless Wanderer podcast with me, Adam Gipke, Craig Rogers and Andy McBride. And if you're joining us right now live, great to have you. Say hello and join in with your comments. But if you're listening to us, great to have you regardless. So uh, we apologize for a little bit of a delay. We just had some communication issues. But regardless of that, that kind of hints why the delay is. And that is because we are joined by a guest. So nicely, we'll introduce you to him. Um, based in Washington and founder of Breaking the Lines, we'll introduce Zach Lowey. Uh, he also writes a number of different articles for different outlets. So um, we'll introduce him now. So Zach, nice to have you on the show. But more importantly, did you enjoy this international break? Um, I did enjoy it because it meant I didn't have to watch football every day. <laughs> um, no, I mean... In all seriousness, I, I know that a lot of people prefer internationals, uh, watching international teams than club teams. No, that's perfectly fine. I know some people will, you know, be more excited about watching like Poland or, or Spain than watching their club team. Me personally, though, I've never been a huge fan of international breaks. You know, I love watching tournaments, like uh, whether it's whether it's senior teams, whether it's youth teams. Um, but for me personally, like. I, I like international breaks because it's where I can like kind of decompress and be like, okay, everybody's going to be like watching, you know, Moldova, Romania at nine and then like <laughs> Poland, Ireland at 12. I'm just, I'm good off that. Personally, I, I haven't really, I haven't really watched much um, international games this, this break. I've watched all of the United States' games um, and I was going to watch the Brazil Argentina game, but I, I got dragged to church instead um, so I was like, man, I'm super, I'm super pissed. I'm missing out on this. Um, and then little did I know, <laughs> whatever, we'll talk about that later. I'm sure. Definitely. Definitely. Well, you've made me blush by the fact that you said, uh, Poland's our team to look for. So, uh, yeah, great to have that definitely on the pod. And he did disappear, but he's back. So representing Scotland, we've got our very own Craig as well. Um, key question, though, for yourself. Can you cope an extra 30 minutes of debate of international football before we get into domestic football for once? Good evening. I can probably just about survive. So if you think that international <laughs> football is boring when you support good teams, you can imagine how boring it is. <laughs> um, but yeah, glad to be back with some proper football this weekend. Fantastic. Great to hear. And representing his own It's Coming Home cheerleader, we've got Andy obviously representing England. So, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll be reminiscing about yesterday's match in particular. But are you enjoying how England have made it easy in their pursuits of going to Qatar? I mean, 
kind of, I guess I'm really arrogant here, but we always qualify for tournaments really, really easily, pretty much. Uh, so it's kind of, it, I don't know, I don't really get excited until we get to the serious stuff, like when you're playing, mm. you know, proper teams. Because um, apart, you know, that's what made yesterday's game entertaining yeah. because there is some, you know, especially with Narendowski and sort of supporting cast, there's some actual class <laughs> players playing in like mm. good leagues. It's, you know, a really competitive game. And I think in European qualifying, there's a real absence of top quality matches. You know, if you look at South American qualifying, North American qualifying, <laughs> you're playing your rivals at least yeah. two or three times during the qualification process, you know. Brazil will play Argentina. They'll play, you know, Colombia and Chile. Mm. Like, they'll play very good calibre of opposition. So when it gets to the main tournament, they're already in good competitive shape where, yeah, I don't know how you change it, but I think, yeah, European qualifying is just a bit meh. <laughs> it's, the <best laughs> way I could, it's the best way I could put it. Fair enough. I'm sure we'll go into it later on the show and uh, get your guys' thoughts as well on how we can jazz up that European format. Um, but Andy, let's start off with yesterday's game. So uh, I was pleasantly surprised. I thought the quality of football between Poland and England was kind of the intensity that maybe we lacked or we have been missing since the Euros. Um, but yeah, I mean, England came into this off the great result from Hungary as well as Andorra. Appreciate Andorra's kind of a given maybe in some respects. But yeah, England's kind of learnt different aspects, I suppose, of their game in terms of the fact that they had a team that was really competitive going for it. And um, maybe it kind of identified a few weaknesses. I don't know what you felt, but obviously I'll give my thoughts on the Poland perspective. But yeah, let's get your thoughts because we were kind of going and throwing between our WhatsApp group kind of saying, yeah, bloody hell, etc. you know, and <laughs> like, I was absolutely gutted when that England goal happened because our favourite friends, Wojciech Szczesny, uh, does it again. Um, but yeah, we'll forget about that for one second. Uh, Andy, what was your thoughts on England's performance? I thought for for the most part, it was, it was relatively relatively controlled. Um, mm. I think it wasn't as incisive as I would like. You know, they worked with too, wasn't really much in a way of clear-cut chances being taken. And I think some, you know, um, I think that midfield pivot of Declan Rice and Calvin Phillips um works really well as a partnership in terms of defensive stability um i thought the referee was was just a bit strange um to put it politely like you know he booked he booked calvin phillips early doors um uh, for something that didn't you know for a completely accidental god it was a stamp that was completely accidental didn't even see him um it's, I mean, Camel Glick could have, um, he was quite entertaining. He could have had about four yellow cards during the whole game. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was almost like, it was almost like, like he was desperate to pick up a red card. He was just picking fights left, right, and center. And it, but you know what? It added to quite a bit of a feisty game. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it was competitive, obviously. You know, I think with uh, Busker, he's done a really good job with the New England Revolution over mm. the United States. I was actually reading an article today um, saying that um, that clubs like Leicester City 
are yeah. looking at him uh, to like transfers and stuff like that. And I've seen him play like a couple of times, I think, because I do follow a little bit of DC United when I watch Major League Soccer. And um, him and like Gustavo Bowie tend to cause a lot of um, hassle on the um, New England website. So I think mm. he'll be one that could come to the Premier League and cause a few surprises. Um, so yeah, but I thought it was just generally very competitive. You can see the way Prem is set up, you know, Greg Kojiak and uh, Cal Lanetti. They're very, com- you know, Combative first set of midfielders. I mean, I know Quakoji didn't have a very good Euros, but by all the mm. counts, he, was, he did okay in the domestic season in Russia. So, yeah, yeah I think um, a lot of people thought England would be a bit of a walkover, but it certainly wasn't. I think the main criticism from my end was the fact that no substitutions were made. Because yeah. you can see Poland was starting to put a bit of pressure on, you know, the last like 10, 15 minutes and starting to get a bit higher up the pitch. And you would have thought like, you know, someone like Jordan Henderson would have been good for the last 10, 15 minutes. Mm. Come on, you know, put shout people into position. Because uh, although Harry Kane is a captain, he's not that vocal. I think you needed someone like Henderson to come in the centre midfield, tell people where to stand, snap into people a little bit. And, you know, considering... Um, yeah, considering the, the options on the bench, you know, you had Trent Alexander-Arnold, yeah. Biako Saka, Jesse Lingard, Reese James, Drew Benningham, Patrick Bamford. Uh, like, you, you, you're not Kieran Trippier as well. You're not telling me one of those couldn't have come on and made a difference in the defensive or offensive capacity. But mm. I thought um, it was interesting watching Kane and Lewandowski, you know, obviously Lewandowski is close touch. And what he was doing off the ball was yeah. the way he just peels off strikers, drops into space and commits people. Um, you can see he has a different, he plays a different role for Poland than he does mm. for Bayern Munich. And I'm really sorry to use a very hated, he's not playing with Bayern Munich <laughs> players, because I know that gets on your tits. But <laughs> it does make a difference as to how he moves about the pitch and what sort of role he operates, you know, in terms of holding it up going out mm. wide a little bit, you know, because he's very, I think they were saying in the commentary, he's very much like a penalty box kind of striker. But obviously, if he, the ball's not going to come <clears> to you as frequently, you kind of have to go and get it for yourself. Whereas I thought Harry Kane did that too much. You know, I think yeah. there was a point in the game where he was at right back. Like, no, 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 don't go there, mate. <laughs> you know, we've got enough creative players. Get you, go into the box, make those runs into the box. I mean, the goal he scored was brilliant, was great finish. Um, mm. to even think about taking it from there. But that's one thing Kane's good at. He gets the ball and takes it early. And I think Wojciech um, mm. Chesney didn't uh, react quick enough, which isn't really much of a shocker, is it? <laughs> I, I wouldn't <laughs> even say that he didn't react quick enough. I would go as far as, like, he's typical Chesney. That is just Chesney. A bit like we talk about Everton Pickford. This is just Chesney. <laughs> this is... You just know, or I, I said it on the tweet yesterday, he just causes me unnecessary grief. Like, he just causes me so much stress. Like, I'd love to have Fabianski or someone else as a goalkeeper. And we have got a production line, even going into youth team, that could be brought up right now. But enough of that beef. Anyway, let's just put that to the side. Um, what I wanted to ask you, though, Andy, is about those substitutions and all the lack of from Southgate. I mean, it has been highlighted that when he gets into a one nil kind of strategy where he's winning the game and it's been seen um the likes of jack pitt brooks who highlighted the fact that it happened at the euros for example against italy it happened previously at euro two or 
World Cup 2018, wasn't it? So against the likes of Croatia, for example, and Colombia, which he did manage to win on penalties. Something about Southgate and his reluctance to kind of change things up. And we kind of both said about Grealish how the fact that he was getting constantly hacked or fouled. Um, and it was obviously to a point where, you know, you just needed someone to freshen it up. I mean, no offence. I mean, the Poland back line is not the paciest. So, you know, someone like a Jaden Sancho would have certainly given them a bit more to be frightened, especially when you're going 1-0 behind as well. Poland just went for it. I just felt like there was a goal coming into it, even though it went into the last minute of injury time. So it was a case from my point of view is, yeah, he doesn't seem to learn from this. And there's obviously been a lot about him being an Ollie in the international scene. And I hate to use that analogy because I think that's a bit unfair, but yeah, are you starting to question his tactical now? I mean, we've said it so many times on this pod, but yeah, we're, we're still seeing it. And maybe that was a good test yesterday. I know it's only yeah. I think I think it's weird. Like I was probably going to bring up the only example myself, and I, and I love Ole to bits. Like he's, he's done a lot of good work, but I think the thing that they're quite similar at is that they have the best eleven, and they go, "That's my best eleven. That's going to win me the game." And I'm going to stick with that. Um, and he was, I think he has an attitude of, um, you know, if it ain't fit, you know, if it ain't broken, don't fix it. Mm. Um, but the difference is, is that, you know, with Ole at times, the reason why he doesn't make substitutions at club level, because he's not always have the depth of personnel that could come on and actually make a difference. Like, you know, there was points in time where Andreas Pereira was sitting on the bench and it's not hoping how you're going to look at him and go, yeah, he's going to make a difference or Dan James. So I can understand that. But if you look at the talent that England have got, you know, to create something like Alexander Arnold or Reese James, their delivery from right back. You know, you've got Patrick Bamford, who scored, I mean, debate where he should be in the squad, but he scored 16 Premier League yeah. goals last season. It is a good return. Like, surely he could have uh, done a quite a good job of holding the ball up. Um, you know, it's quite good technically, even if it's not necessarily clinical. Obviously, Sancho had obviously gone back to the England squad, but Jesse Lingard, you know, when he's on form, he's really good at breaking the lines um and committing people uh but yeah it's and mostly Biyaka Saka uh of Bikaya Saka rather um with the form he was in during the Euros like yeah it just could have been there was all there was lots of different options I think having that kind of depth of England squad uh and to not use them I think was a bit criminal really um I think maybe thinking well we're going to qualify for the World Cup anyway. Um, but you know, when it comes to the big high pressure games, you tend to find that you know the man the managers that come out on top are the ones that are willing to take a risk for good or bad. You know, if you make a substitution and it doesn't work out, that's not necessarily on you. That's that's probably on the player who failed to make an impact. But if you don't make a change and the result does go against you, people are gonna look at you and ask questions, which I think is fair. Mm. Sack, I just wanted to bring you into the conversation. What's your thoughts from afar? Because obviously here is a lot of intensity around Southgate and his decision-making. Um, what's your impressions? Because at the end of the day, he's still getting results and he's still progressing the England team further than they've ever been to some respects because the last Euros they got to the final, which is or unheard of, should we say. But yeah, what, what is your thoughts? Because I'm sure we'll talk about America soon, but yeah. And that's a different scenario altogether. But yeah, from your point of view, Southgate, is he considered quite well back up in the United States? I mean, 
My opinion on Southgate, and I guess the general opinion, is that you know he's a good coach, not a great coach. I don't think he would. I don't think there's any any Premier League team who'd take a shot on him. For example, um, I, I do. I will say though that you know I gained a lot of respect for him over over the past Euros, not just for his uh, not just for his management, but also for his um, for his uh, management off the pitch. You know, standing up for his players. And you know, making making their voices heard. Uh, with that being said, though, I do think there was kind of this general feeling that 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 tournament was was built for England to win. Mm. Not saying it was like rigged for them. I've <laughs> got like, the money for that. <laughs> I, I think you do, but um, but England. I mean, they had one away game. Uh, then you compare that to plenty of other teams. Obviously, Italy didn't have much of a much. They, they had more travel, but but not much the travel compared to other countries as well. I mean, but looking at, you know, also England not having really any major injuries, I believe. Um, maybe I'm missing some, but you compare that to like Italy, mm. right? Who 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 lost um who lost Spinazzola uh in the Belgian game Belgian game, who lost uh Chiesa to injury in the final, you know. I do think that it was like this tournament was there for the taking for England to win. I don't think that, you know, you you can't really say that, okay, Southgate takes England to their first final in 55 years. They lose on penalties. I don't think you can necessarily say that's a failure, but it is a bit, it is a bit disappointing because I do think that this squad, I mean, looking at the, just the the quality in attack, um, likes of Jaden Sancho, Harry Kane, Mason Mount, like, I don't think there's a single country in the world who, who comes close to that, frankly. So, I, and, I, and I think that Southgate, there were a lot of decisions that he got wrong, but there are also some that he got right. I, w- I would argue that um, going with, with three at the back and, and wing backs in the final was a decision that he, got, that he got right. The issue, though, was that he didn't realize when to change it, right? He waited too long, which has been kind of, I would say, his Achilles heel, Um as England manager, right? As I believe, uh, I believe Adam Adam touched up on about it. Just just talking about kind of being too too stubborn. You know, you pick a team, you pick pick a formation, and you don't really kind of change that, right? And th- that's part of being a good coach. You know, it's not just putting in the players; it's also you know tweaking your system uh, to to meet the the course of the game. And I think that in general, that was one 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 thing where we saw that Southgate completely lacked. And and another reason why Mancini, Roberto Mancini, is just frankly a much better mm. manager than Gareth Southgate. So I definitely think that's one thing that he needs to work on. But um, I, I don't think I mean England will will qualify for the World Cup pretty comfortably. I think there'll be a threat there. I, I definitely don't think it'll be as easy as it was mm. in in uh, this past summer. But at the end of the day, England are on an upward curve. Um, they've keep on producing an incredible amount of talents. And uh, another thing that I would say I, I like about Southgate is the fact that he's, he's generally kept this squad pretty young. Um, I know he's given some opportunities to, you know, older players such as Trippier and Lingard, but those are generally the, the exception rather than the rule. So when you have, you know, a, a young squad, you've got players who are, who are approaching their prime, right? Who aren't leaving their prime. So that's one thing that, that definitely bodes in his favor. Um, but yeah, like you said, like 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 I said, I think that Southgate, he's a good coach. He's not a great coach. Mm. Um, I, I don't I don't think he's as good of a coach as, for example, Roberto Mancini. 
Um, but I, I also don't think that, like, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that England can't win a major tournament uh, mm. without him. You know, I, they got to the penalty. They got to they got to penalties. I mean, I obviously think that bringing in uh, Jaden Sancho and Marcus Rashford and having them take penalties without without you know taking a single touch uh, in in extra time was a horrendous decision. But you know, at the end of the day, um, they were still very close to to making history. So I think that Southgate has done a good job. You can't ignore the good work that he's done. Um, but do I think there are better coaches uh, that, that, that could do a better job with England? Yes. The question is, though, will, will they take that position? Because obviously international positions are definitely not as attractive as club roles. Um, I mean, from an American point of view, people who, who complain about Greg Berhalter will say, oh, you know, you've got Jesse Marsh uh, coaching RB Leipzig. And I'm like, you know, even if Marsh was still at RB Salzburg, like there's no way that he would leave Salzburg <laughs> to coach this to coach this team when like we're struggling to get past like Honduras. But that's that's mm. for another discussion. We'll definitely cover that off shortly. Don't worry, Zach. Um, but I just wanted to get your quick words on Adam Buxa, obviously having a good season in the US. Um, Poland fans are a bit indifferent to him at the moment. I Certainly, I mean, he's made an impression for the first few games that he's been introduced. So uh, beating Lewandowski to his initial record, just for now anyway, at least. Um, but yeah, I, I've always been of the thought that he's definitely an up-and-coming player. I mean, how is he perceived in the MLS anyway? Yeah, I haven't. Um, I'll be honest. I don't watch much of New England. Uh, there are some. There are some MLS teams that I try to that I that I follow, such as uh, DC, Miami, mm. uh, Dallas. But but New England honestly isn't one of them. <laughs> uh, so I'm sorry. I can't. I can't really provide much. I know that. I think. I, I think Brian Gill is there. Um, and and I know that. I believe. Uh, I believe Tejan Buchanan got a big move from while he was playing at New England, and he just joined. I think it was Club Bruges, and he's he's one of the best talents on in in Canada. So uh, you know, who knows? Maybe maybe he'll get. Um, or sorry, I, I said Brian Gill. I meant Carlos Gill. Car Brian Gill's at Tottenham. Carlos <laughs> yeah. Gill. I was thinking that way. I'm sorry. Well, well, I was, maybe he's gone alone there. Maybe. <laughs> Carlos Gill is the, the the another player who was on that horrendous Via team, who has like made a career for himself in in the states. Um, but yeah, no, Carlos Gill, I believe, is playing with Buxa. But yeah, I haven't really seen that much of Buxa. So so. Um, so I, I can't uh, really give my opinion on him. <laughs> no problem. No problem. I don't expect you to know every post player, so that's fine. Um, we'll move broadly across to Scotland. Um, Craig, we'll get your thoughts. Obviously, a good 1-0 win against Moldova, followed up by a good win against Austria. That puts Scotland in prime condition or prime position even in that sense. I did see the uh, Glasgow Cafu also performing against <laughs> Moldova, and he, he did have a good game, I have to be honest. Um, are your hopes up for Scotland's chances? Well, that, that Austria game changes everything. Really, really, we got comfortably beaten by Denmark. No surprises there. Denmark are, are an exceptional side mm. um, and, and better than Scotland in just about every area on the pitch. Moldova at home, I actually watched this game. I broke the habit of lighting and watched uh, some international football. Uh, and it could have been, it could have really easy, quite easily been three or four against Moldova, as you would expect. And then not expected anything at all away, away at Austria, who are 
not world class by any stretch, but do have some quality players on that side. Um, penalty probably on balance was a penalty after after Val looked at it, but that sort of doesn't blow the group wide open because Denmark absolutely will top this group and comfortably will do. But it puts us right in that potential playoff spot, and then we could get to the playoffs like we saw for the Euros. You just never know. So that Austria game and that was the result definitely gives us a lifeline that we didn't think we had um, 24 hours ago. So yeah, very good. We'll quickly round off as well the Euro section of the qualifiers. So Italy went on to achieve their unbeaten run of 37 matches after beating Lithuania 5-0. Um, that was obviously a record from the previous match with a 0-0 draw against Switzerland where Jorginho missed another penalty. Um, for your benefit, Craig Zaniola made his debut for Italy as well. So he's now capped as a Roma player. So that's good for news. Yeah. Uh, but an interesting stat that I picked out here from shared by whoscore.com most chances missed in the U uh, world cup qualifiers first place chiro mobile with nine followed by erling Haaland on six <laughs> so there was no surprises there uh in other random facts uh carlo Caganese tweeted tony yaboa's nephew is playing for italy's under 21s uh didn't even know he could qualify for italy but there you go um but i thought guys uh an interesting group just to keep your eye out for the next round it's group g uh this is the netherlands holland and turkey is the main ones there um both Holland as well as Norway are drawn on 13 points with Turkey in third place on 11 points. So that's a very interesting group to watch. As I would say, Group I with Germany at the moment, they're ahead uh, with 15 points and Armenia in second place. I wouldn't have expected Armenia, but yeah, they've got 11 points followed by Romania and North Macedonia, our favourites there. Anyway, we're going to shift to the CONCACAF. So, uh, Zach, I did have a quick look at this, and this is quite the interesting one. So, obviously, the US drew one all with Canada on Monday night. Um, for those watchers and listeners, uh, they may be shocked to see Jamaica's bottom of this group at the moment. They lost to Panama 3-0, and Panama are currently second. Um, but I've put on here as a note, Western McKenney antics discuss. Um, obviously, a lot about him uh, not following protocol. Um, that obviously disrupted, I think, the group. That's what was shared by Tyler Adams anyway. Um, but yeah, what, what is going on with the US? Because I mean, a year ago, we were kind of tipping the US to potentially be maybe the surprises in the upcoming World Cup, but at this rate, it might not even qualify. So what's going on with the US? Yeah, I mean, up until I would say like, I would say up until the 60th minute or so, I forgot when we scored, it was on track to be like the worst possible outcome. I mean, because I mean, you look at it, Okay, we, um, you know, we drew uh, in El Salvador, which is, you know, playing playing Concacaf is is not easy, mm -hmm. honestly. I mean, people who I realize that people would rather watch like in, uh, European qualifiers, um, and you know, we'll say that oh, it's really just U.S., Mexico, and Canada. But honestly, Concacaf, it's hard to explain. It's almost like Afcon in a bit because it's just there's so much chaos. <laughs> there's so much like you look at like a guy. You look at a team like like Honduras last night. Um, I'm pretty sure the the guy who scored for them was like playing in like the Angolan second division or the first division. I forgot wh where he was playing at, but it's like it's almost like the the power balance completely vanquishes. Um, so there's that, but there's also just the fact that 
you know, we're we're about I don't know three years into the Greg Verhalter uh, reign, and it still doesn't seem like there's any system whatsoever. Like there's no clear cut playing style. Um, so yeah, I mean the El Salvador game was a disappointment. Canada game, another disappointment as well because you're you know you're playing at home, you're playing in Nashville. Yes, you were you were missing you know Giovanni Reina, you're missing Weston McKenney, but you should still be expected to to get it done against against Canada. And frankly, you know I don't think the system worked at all. Um, I thought like Serginho Dest got absolutely torched by Alfonso Davies. Um, there were some bright sparks. I think Brendan Aronson did well. He was pretty much pressing, uh, just running running himself to, into the ground. You know, pressing nonstop. I liked. I thought Tyler Adams did well, apart from uh, this one play where we were attacking. Uh, we had a you know a good counterattack, and like for some reason he just randomly body checked uh, this guy. I think it was Tejan Buchanan. I was like, what did you do that for? Like you do that when they're attacking, not when we're attacking. You know. Um, so that was kind of brainless, but I still thought that Adams was one of our better performers. Um, but yeah, I mean, we sort of after after that, I think. I think the Canada game, we were just talking about, you know, how Southgate is, is super slow to react. Burhalter, I argue, is even slower to react um, because, like, you could clearly see that Canada were gaining momentum even before the equalizer. And yet, you know, he took until, I don't know, like the 83rd minute to make any genuine subs. And it's like, you know, this is, this is not the first time this has happened. This is something mm. that you will consistently see with Burhalter, you know, not sticking with you know, just, just really struggling to make those changes to control a game when, you know, even with the likes of Reyna and, and McKinney and, you know, Dest injured, there's still plenty of quality there. Um, so I think we should have won that, and it was a disappointment that we did. And at the end of the day, I think that Canada will probably be more disappointed than, mm. than, than we were because they, they looked much better side for, like, the last 30 minutes. Um, and they've probably been better definitely been much better this this month in terms of qualifying, you know, and they, they looked like a much better outfit under John Herdman. They were very impressive in the Gold Cup, um, came very close to reaching the final, but but lost a heartbreaker to Mexico in, uh, in Austin. But they're definitely a program that's on the up. U.S., on the other hand, you know, I think that – I definitely think that winning the CONCACAF Nations League and winning the Gold Cup has bought uh, Burhalter – a longer leash. I think that it's bought him some more confidence, shall we say. But with that being said, I mean, there's still so many uh, question marks on him. Mm. I don't think that he was the right man to take charge of it. I don't think that you spend 14 months searching for a coach just to appoint Greg Berhalter. For me, that was, it was more nepotism than anything because of, you know, the links to Jay Berhalter and the Federation and whatnot and Ernie Stewart. Um, I don't think he was the right choice, but, you know, I'll give him my support. And I, I do have respect for what he, how he handled the Weston situation. But, I mean, looking at, the, looking, at the, um, looking at last night's game in San Pedro Sula against, against Honduras, you know, you had a, a ton of players like Andy Nahar and Minor Figueroa and um, uh, Alex Roldan just pretty much playing us off the pitch. I'm not exaggerating. I mean, they were the much better side throughout the first 45, they probably should have been up, you know, more. It was just, and, and looking at, you, you have to divide the blame up with both the players as well as the coach. I mean, because frankly, a lot of players 
were just massive disappointments. Uh, John Brooks, you know, playing for a Champions League team in Wolfsburg, absolutely embarrassing in uh, in Honduras's goal. James Sands, you know, given a chance to perform, completely a complete letdown. So many others who just who just struggled. And I think that I mean, playing Tyler Adams as a right wing back, like I understand that you know Dest is not available, but for me, that's just absolutely ridiculous because De- because Adams is arguably our most important player alongside Pulisic. You could make an argument that he's, he's more important than Pulisic. Mm. Um, and to just take him out of midfield where he plays best and, and, and put him on the right side, playing as like a right wing back. Like if you're going to play him on the right side of defense, okay, play him, on, play him on the right side of a back four. And when you're playing him on the right, uh, as a right wing back, you expect him to get forward, you know, expect him to combine. But to have him and Josh Sargent on the same side, um, that was just a recipe for disaster. So frankly, we got absolutely outplayed um, for the first, I don't know, 60 minutes or so. I do, I, I do have to give Burhalter credit, though, for, for making the subs at halftime that he did. Um, you know, you, looking at likes of I thought, uh, Sebastian Letget was very important. Anthony Robinson coming on as well, uh, very, very important. Um, so, so I got to give him credit for those subs. He got, he got it right with those subs. Um, so overall disappointing performance, but, but impressive result. Um, at the end of the day, I'd say our individual quality, uh, prevailed, uh, thanks in large part to Ricardo Pepe, who was probably the star of the show. <laughs> and quick word on Panama. What, what do you reckon of them? Because obviously yeah. some really good results. I didn't anticipate it myself. Should we be anticipating them as potential underdogs going into this? Yeah, Panama. I mean, you, you, like you said, you don't really expect a team like Panama to, to go far. But I mean, credit to them. I believe, uh, I think Thomas Christensen, he, he did a very good job um, getting, getting a draw against Mexico. I mean, that's that in mm. itself is a massive achievement. Um, and yeah, I mean, credit to them. I, I remember watching them and in the World Cup, they were pretty much out of their depth. But, uh, and, and you had a lot of older players and on that team, like Roman Torres, who, have, who I, I believe have since retired. Uh, but yeah, I, I definitely think there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot to like there, you know. Um, mm. A lot of promising players in their prime, Michael Murillo, uh Barcenas you know you you can never like I said with 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 CONCACAF you know there's so much like the competitive balance in itself like completely shrinks you know because there will be guys who are playing in like you know Mexico or or Guatemala who will you know be completely outplaying a guy with 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 40 appearances and and that goes with not just for other teams but but for like for for the own team you know a guy like John Brooks you know who's who's played who's been playing in the Bundesliga for for a while I mean, coming out of this international break where, like, you know, I, I don't even know if he's going to be starting every game next month because, frankly, he was – he looked like the worst uh, center, central defender next to Miles Robinson. You know, I thought that he was a lot – he was he was, he was was a lot weaker um, and not as aggressive as he, as he should have been. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's just another reason why, like – you know, looking at, for example, Josh Sargent, a guy who got like a 10 million pound move to, to Norwich compared with a guy like Ricardo Pepe, who's 18 years old playing for Dallas, like Pepe was miles better than, than Sargent. And I believe he's a much better player than Sargent. 
So it's just, you know, another reason why you can't always look at the team that they play for. Can't always look at the price tag. Mm. You've got to, you know, evaluate how they play on the pitch. I think it's, I find it's maybe competitiveness because I think sometimes, especially for the European based players, it's a lot more, you know, sometimes a bit more possession dominated. Um, You know, they're very much attacking versus defense in some games. Whereas, you know, if you look at like MLS as a whole, it's very, very competitive. Like you have to be at 110% to to get a point, you know. It's um, trying to predict score lines is notoriously difficult in MLS. And I think maybe maybe that a little bit, you know, with other North American leagues, when they go in, even the likes of, like, for example, Andy Nasher, um, yeah. he's had a horrific time of injuries, but, you know, because he had a big move to Anderlecht, was expected to really kick on, but he's mm-hmm. actually a really, really good player. He's had quite a good comeback season for DC since resigning for them. And yeah, you know, like the Canada squad, I think something came out um, like a team back 20 years ago, Atiba Hutchison made his debut. Only him and Drain Di Rosario were the only professional players for Canada. And if you look at the Canadian like roster now, they've got, you know, players, Lyon playing for Bajiktas, um, you know, Hoyler, who's obviously had a good, you know, an okay career. Um, Alfonso Davies. Alfonso Davies is just incredible. Like they've got, yeah, they've got you know a real mm. bed of talent who yeah. are playing in good professional leagues where perhaps wasn't the case a few years ago. I think maybe that's when you know the likes of the USA they sort of maybe expect to steamroll the people when actually right. in fact it's a lot harder than they initially anticipate. Yeah, that's no, I, absolutely. I mean, just to add on, I mean. Like you said, it's it's notoriously I, – I don't bet, but if there was one league that I would not bet on, it's MLS because it's absolutely it's, – it's <laughs> I've really tried. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't recommend it. <laughs> it's so hard. I mean, yeah. But, I mean, yeah, going back to Nahar as well because I, I was – I didn't like the fact that he was tearing up uh, our, our defense, but it was it was a vintage performance from him last night in San Pedro Sula. Um, as a DC United fan, it was nice to see him, you know, doing very well. Um, a lot of people don't know this. Nahar could have played for the U.S. I mean, he didn't because, you know, he came over as a kid, um, as a kid coming through Honduras. His, his, his family kind of had to almost smuggle him across the border at a very perilous trip across the, the desert and, and like going from Honduras. I believe it was like a two week trip from Honduras through Mexico to wow. Houston and then and this is as like a 14 year old or a 13 year old and then like and then having another smuggler like take him from Houston to like I think Virginia where he settled and like wasn't even you know getting noticed until uh somebody somebody found him playing on a park and went to DC United and like take a look at him and so you know started becoming a star for DC obviously getting that big move at a young age um and the U.S. were interested in having him play for them but because of, you know, immigration laws and, and, you know, papers and whatnot, I believe he would have had to wait like five years or so. And he would have missed out on, he wouldn't have been able to play in the 2010 World Cup, I think, for the U.S. Um, so he ended up playing for Honduras. Uh, but I, I do think that you can, as you don't have to be Honduran to, to, to take pride in, in the Harris performance. So it, it, was, it was very nice to see him uh, showing out in San Pedro Sula. Well, we'll quickly move from uh, Western McKenney's antics to the crazy <laughs> scenes of uh, Brazil and Argentina. So for those that may not know, that match was abandoned after 11 minutes because you had a load of health authorization figures chasing Argentinian players. Uh, so, yeah, 
Uh, I was going to talk to Andy about this, but uh, I'll get your guys' thoughts on this as well while we get Andy back into the stream. But yeah, what a game. I mean, I can't believe uh, what we saw, but we were entertained to five minutes of a football match before the likes of Lionel Messi had to be dragged off the pitch. Um, so now that Andy is back, um, yeah, you brought us up to uh, this topic of Brazil and Argentina. I mean, what did you make of it initially? Well, it'd been rumbling on for a good few days yeah. um, because because um, basically I think Tim Vickery is like a South American football mm. correspondent summed it up quite well. So in short, because uh, of the COVID reasons, Brazil is on the UK's red list. If you come from Brazil into the UK, you've got to quarantine. And that's that. What uh, for, what a lot of people don't know is that the opposite also applies. So for those coming from the UK into Brazil, we're on a red list. Like if Brazil thinks we're dealing with stuff badly, you know, it's a bit <laughs> of a problem. Uh, so, yeah. And um, apparently what had happened is that some of the, uh, the Premier League-based um, Brazil internationals that had turned up had gone, if you, where have you come? Have you come from England? Nah. Not at all, mate. No, um, even though they play in the Premier League. So, nonetheless, um, the Brazilian government obviously took a few days to deliberate over this. And rather than making the decision before, you know, for extra dramatic effects, they storm onto the pitch, effectively <laughs> drag them off. Uh, apparently, that the Argentina players been that were involved were locking themselves in the dressing rooms. We didn't have to come face to face with the um, Brazilian authorities. It was just all a bit of a shambles. And to follow on from that, because there was a row before the international break over letting players go in the first place, I think there's five or six players that uh, Brazil have basically said there's a rule where if you refuse to join up with your national team when called up in a FIFA allowed international window they could stop you playing for five days after mm. um the international break has ended so for example uh liverpool are going to be missing allison uh manchester united really really unfortunately are going to be missing fred uh for potentially <laughs> the newcastle game and the um champions league game as you can tell i'm incredibly disappointed by this <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> i don't even think won't get game uh, so yeah it's it's just all a bit of a shambles really i think there's a lot of anger because um Obviously, they've been playing uh, Copper Americas pretty much yearly, it feels yeah. like, at the moment. And a lot of people felt, especially with the situation of COVID, that it perhaps re wasn't really necessary to, necessary to be playing it. Um, and, you know, they could have used that time to maybe catch up on qualifiers and things like that. And, yeah, it's just all a bit of a shambles. But the thing is, is that it's going to be the same situation in, what, a month's time with yeah. November internationals. And then you've got... So October international, and then you've got November internationals. It's just too much international football, <laughs> basically. And just to give the listener a bit more craziness, then we also saw Morocco's game against Guinea cancelled due to a military coup <laughs> in that country. So, yes, Morocco's team had to be escorted out to the airport and on the nearest flight to Morocco uh, due to fears over their safety. So, uh, yes, we're almost there, Craig. Um, but a nice little question just to bring you into it. How would you jazz up these kind of qualifiers? Because I was having this debate with Bucket Hat Sam, who was our 
guest on our show a few episodes ago and he was bored of it as well he cannot wait for domestic football to come in and i'm sure there's a lot of us like that who are you know a bit like roy Keane and that meme of like what the fuck basically we've got international qualifiers in four weeks time basically but yeah i mean i was trying to think about it in a european format it's very difficult because you've got about 56 teams to kind of try and accommodate here so it's not straightforward as doing one single league um the only way i could think is that you maybe do a combination of maybe smaller groups um stages where teams only play each other once over a 90 minute 90 minute period and if they don't win maybe go into penalty shootout i don't know if that's even the right answer but there's got to be something that in terms of intensity we could uh, make it a bit more fun right i don't know what's your thoughts craig yeah i was i was thinking about this actually as the the guys were talking um i'm not opposed to the format i think the groups the groups work i think the problem is is it's so stop start and as an example, you, you, you'll know where England are, you'll know where Poland and the United States and Scotland are. And then when it comes to the next round of fixtures in October, you'll be like, right, okay, who are we playing? Where are we in the table? It's all very, very top start. I wonder if, if we start, if leading up to our tournament, if you started the season three or four weeks earlier, and then in, say, May or back in the date, we'll just have a five weeks of just qualifiers so that it's almost like a sprint finish of same groups, you play each other twice, but you're going to play over the next five weeks, play all your games, and then two-week break and you go into the tournament. And I wonder if it would feel like a bit of a mini pre-start to the tournament, and that might generate a bit more interest. But out with that, I don't really know how you how you do it, because it is, you know, people just are waiting for a club football to start back again. But for me, if you did it all together, towards the end of the, the season, it might be a bit more exciting. And... Either Andy or Zach join in, but uh, FIFA trying to propose a two-year World Cup as well. So every two years, a World Cup. I mean, yeah, I don't know what your thoughts are, but more money for the corrupt FIFA crew, right? So, uh, yeah, whoever wants to take the voice on this one. I just think it would be an absolutely horrendous idea to do a World Cup every two years. I mean, I'm not... I wouldn't necessarily be opposed to to pushing that. Like what Wenger was saying today, you know, pushing the internationals to the end of the season and sort of almost have like a separate season. I think that's an idea worth exploring. But to have um, to have to to have a World Cup every two years, absolutely terrible idea. That will probably end up happening happening because of greed and just how how much of a role that plays in football. Um, but I just think. I mean, looking at looking at Copa America, you know, for example, I'm not saying it wasn't it wasn't fun. Like I, I watched I watched a few Copa America games, but like the feeling that you got from watching the Euros compared to the Copa America, like it wasn't just the the improved quality of football. It was the fact that okay, it's been five years since I last saw the Euros, whereas like Copa at this point, it feels like it's almost every year or every every two years. So I think that, and it, it, it's almost like similar to 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 how money works. You know, if you have like a ton of money, you know, then that, that eventually becomes devalued, you know? And I think that's, that's, that's kind of the case with, with, with tournaments, you know, with Copa, I feel like the Copa has been devalued, uh, at least for me. I mean, I know that somebody who supports Brazil or some supports Uruguay, they're always going to be excited about the Copa, but for me as a neutral who doesn't necessarily have like a, I don't have, I don't have a, I don't have a bone to pick in the fight between the Euros and the Copa. For me, I just was much more, uh, excited about the Euros and the Copa just because like 
the cop the euros every four years copa it feels like it's every year um and so i think that you put a world cup every two years not only would it be absolutely catastrophic when when we're talking about you know fixture congestion and trying to limit uh fatigue and limit injuries but also just in terms of the passion that people get the world cup is the biggest sporting event in the world and having it every two years like for me it's just not as it's just not as fun um when you have something that's every four years you know whether it's whether it's like an election or whether it's a a tournament like it's just the feeling you get from that you you cannot compare it to something that's every two years you know and that's part of the magic in the world cup and that's why for me like they they shouldn't touch it at all but i do think it'll it'll probably end up happening cool and Andy, I did forget to uh, introduce these questions when we were talking about England, but I thought we'd introduce them anyway right now just so we can summarise the qualifiers off. Seb may ask, who do you think would be better for England right now, Foden or Saka? It's a difficult one to answer because for me, I think they're completely different players mm. who offer completely different things to the England team. And, you know, putting them in the lineup is all dependent on what you need from those players you know with Foden he the beauty of him is that he's um he's very when you can play for Man City he's very incisive he's good at the little passing good little little one twos um and break it down a deep pack defense where if you need to play a bit more on the counter attack you need a bit of pace and decision Saka is um probably better on that side of things so you know I suppose it was just an outright who's better in terms of talent. You could argue Foden, but I think in the context of England, it's difficult to compare them because, like I said, they offer different mm. things. Um, so, yeah, and I'm just actually touching on the, the World Cup stuff. I think one thing that's really disappointed me about it is Arsene Wenger's role in this because he always struck me as somebody who, you know, was like a lone figure against football's dark forces if you like you know he had very when he was at Arsenal he had very sort of pure principles of how the game should be played and bringing on youngsters and you know has you, you felt that he was like a little grandfather of a beautiful game kind of thing um and for him to be like knocking about go yeah let's play a world cup every year everybody was love it I don't know who they asked but yeah, but it is an entirely money-motivated decision because I was reading an article the other day and basically I think FIFA's motivation behind it is this, is that FIFA have this cash cow that they get once every four years. And don't get me wrong, it's a humongous cash cow, but again, an infrequent one. Whereas if you look at UEFA, they've not only got the Euros that happen, they've got the, um, the Champions League uh, as well. Uh, which again generates a huge amount of money, and you you can see FIFA trying to take that money away from UEFA because they've made you can see it coming because they've made expansions to Club World Cup. Yep, that mm. happens. Um, <laughs> where they're trying to add in more teams than just the Champions League, where they're trying to add in a couple more European teams to have it in at the end of the season. Um, it's just yeah, it's just a bit of a a money-motivated battle between them and UEFA, really. And unfortunately, the ones that are suffering will be the players. And as uh, Zach said, um, even if you're, say, if you're a player, right, you know, if you're, I don't know, Lionel Messi, if you're playing a Copa America once every four years, you know that once you start knocking into your late 20s or 30s, that could be your last one. Mm. Um, and, you know, you, but mentally, you'll just go up a couple of years. Now, if you start having a World Cup every couple of years, even the 30, 31, 32-year-old player will go, 
try again in two years' time, it'll be fine. Whereas, you know, that level of jeopardy and once-in-a-lifetime opportunity isn't quite there if you have a, a tournament that frequently. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, they're already looking to expand it to bloody 48 teams. Like, yeah, really? Is it, there is not 48 good international teams. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, there, there's going to be some absolute dross in a 48 team tournament. I mean, they just, you know, a bit like in the Euros with it being heavily expanded, they just about was watchable. Um, but yeah, it'd be a bloody awful idea. Final question then from the Divided Opinion podcast, which asks us, is Southgate limiting the potential of this England squad? What's your thoughts, Andy? Uh, I think you've kind of gone into it already. Yeah. I think, you know, there's potential to do better. I don't think he's done a bad job, but you could probably argue there's even more that could be brought out of that squad. Um, I guess the question would be is who, if you were to go right, with Saki's Gareth Southgate tomorrow, who do you bring in that's on the market? Um, assuming mm. that England would go for an English manager, the pool of... I can't even really say talent. Um, <laughs> options that are available would be, you know, I don't know, Eddie Howe. Ed, Eddie Howe, <laughs> Frank Lampard. Um, Frank, yeah, it's not the finest selection pool, is it? Paul Merson. Um, Give it to Ted know. Lasso. <laughs> yeah. I'd probably take Ted Lasso over, so, to be honest. Uh, we had Sam Allardyce. Yeah, yeah, he was Ted Lasso, wasn't so, he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you know, unless you did, unless they do what England did in the nineties and the noughties, you know, they get like a what, um, Sam Aladici, you mean? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, or they just get someone like I don't know, Antonio Conte, Rafa Benitez, like yeah, someone. Do you like remember that. they were paying like Fabio Capello like six, seven million pound a year to just sit around? Basically, sit around. They might just do throw that kind of money towards Antonio Conte or something and go, <laughs> fuck it, let's just see what happens. It would be entertaining. Um, but I just don't I, see wonder, I wonder if Steven Gerrard wins the league next year with Rangers. Southgate takes England through Qatar, doesn't win it. The summer of 2023, I wonder if England go for Steven Gerrard. Do you not I, want I, him at a club team though? Or I, think, I, I think see only, that naturally that'd be his progression, right? I think there's only two there's only two jobs he leaves Rangers for, but it's Liverpool England. And mm. I wonder if 2023, if he's won you know three consecutive titles, had a good go at the Champions League. Southgate doesn't win in Qatar. I think he's probably campaigning of the cycle. I just wondered if the stars might align and you might see England tapping up to Stephen Jar, depending on what he does in the Champions League. Now, if he goes to the Champions League and in his tactically outclassed, which I don't think will happen. But if he is, then that might be different. But if he can get some good results, maybe qualify from the group stage a couple of times, England might look at that and think, do you know what? Ex-England captain, Premier League legend. Why not? Why not? I don't think about Eddie Howe. Christ. Yeah. yeah. I was going to say, when it. Mourinho has his meltdown at Roma, maybe he could yeah. take the race. <laughs> that would suit him, oh, right? I, apparently, Jose has said he wants an international job. I think we all assume yeah. it would be Portugal. Oh, I can't imagine We just I'm... need Amazon's all or nothing on that as well. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, yeah. I think Luke Shaw will be hoping that doesn't happen. <laughs> but, yeah. oh God, that would be pure Go on, Zach, what did you want to add? No, I, I've said for a while that I think Jose is, I think that, you know, he's, He's sort of an outdated manager, but I think his style is still suited to international football. And I don't know. I always thought that he'd be interested in taking the Portugal job because mm. Fernando Santos's time, I think, is, is, is numbered. 
Um, but England obviously would be an attractive position. You have to you have to remember that. I mean, in, international jobs isn't for everybody, but I think there are some coaches who would favor an international position. I think that Mancini is one like I think one of the reasons why I'm not going to say he didn't work out at at City, but but one of the reasons why he left and one of the reasons why he left Zenit is the fact that you know he is sort of a hard person to work with and like. He, you know, sometimes he'll just mm-hmm. see a player and like, you know, get out of here. You know, I think he did that with uh, Stephen Ireland at City, if I'm not mistaken. And like to, to be an international manager, you sort of have like more control over that. You know, like it's mm-hmm. not like, OK, I'm trying to like you're Jose at, at Roma, right? Like you're trying to sell in Zonza, you're trying to sell Fazio and like they're not accepting uh, an offer elsewhere. Right? They want to stay and collect their paycheck. Well, in international football, you don't have that problem. You know, it's just, it. you know, you flip another month yeah. and it's like, if you don't like them, just don't call them up. So I think that's one of the reasons why um, taking the Italy position appealed to Mancini. And I think that a lot of other coaches are probably similar. I think maybe Zidane, I mean, obviously uh, working with this French generation and, and winning another mm-hmm. trophy is, is a massive attraction. But I think also just not having to deal with players that you don't like, you know, or at least having that position, having that power to be like, you know what, get out of here. I mean, if Greg Berhalter wanted to, he could just say, Weston, you're not, you're not playing for the U.S. again. You know, you have that power, right? Um, it's not like in club football where, you know, you have contracts and if, if nobody sends in an offer, then okay, well, they're probably going to end up staying for one or two more years. Right. So I think that's mm-hmm. something that, that like the, the, I would say more and more power, you know, obviously you don't have as much time to work with these players. You don't have as many games. And that's something that will put off a lot of managers. But um, I do think that there are some managers who would who would almost prefer that. And, well, and frankly, good, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, there. Are, I think there are more coaches than just Lampard and Eddie Howe who would be interested. <laughs> yeah. Like, obviously not everybody would, but like, I think there are definitely are a lot of coaches who are like, attracted by that like you know if you don't like a player just you don't call him up you know <laughs> yeah it's just the english fa that i yeah. have no faith in terms of decision making <laughs> they'll just go for like a you know very media friendly figure but you're right i think international football suits intense characters because they could be intense and batshit mental for a few weeks and then they get to chill out again and i think that's what jose needs when he's you know coming up to the age that he is i think you know he just gets too angry at club football <laughs> <laughs> and that people in general, you know, what he needs is a few weeks of the training pick, a couple of months rest, a reset. That's what Jose needs. Like, if I was his therapist, I'd just be like, no, mate, take an international <laughs> job, relax, chill out. But, you know, we'll get the um, the Jose free season cycle at Roma and I'll short be very, very entertaining. <laughs> I think that, I mean, Unai Emery fell out with Artem Zuba and won the Europa League. Um, and then uh, Mancini fell out with Zuba and he won the Euros. Just find somebody who, who hates Artem Zuba and, and hire him, and then you've got your answer solved. 2022, coming home. It's coming home, baby. <laughs> well, listener and viewers, that is the end of the internationals for at least another four weeks, where when I do this next pod, Andy and Craig are probably not going to join me. So I look forward <laughs> to that one. Um, but, Craig, let's start off by next reviewing <laughs> some of the games anyway. So uh, let's start off with the Bundesliga um, some tasty games there, right? So we've got Leipzig versus, uh, I believe, Bayern. And then we've also got Leverkusen playing, uh, I can't remember off the top of my head, but there is some big games in Bundesliga, isn't there? 
Yeah, the the one this weekend is is Leipzig versus Bayern. Uh, of course, Leipzig have been less than convincing under Jesse Mars in their first the first few games. Bayern um, seem to just be the the real Bayern, just um, without mm. really improving the squad massively. They they just look like they're going to you know steamroll to another, another title. The nearest competitors last year, Leipzig, they just went and got their their coach, best centre half, and their captain. So that's just how Bayern Munich do business. So you you would think that if if Leipzig have got any sort of hope of even being competitive in terms of a title race, they have to, you know, at least not not take a doing here, at least try and lead on a marker, even just for the morale of the squad. Because if Bayern turn up to Leipzig and it is in it's in Leipzig, if they turn up and do them two or three without with a pretty neat performance from Leipzig, then um, mm. that could you know, really make or break their season. So very very important that they they go off to another one. Uh, one of the games I've actually picked out, which might not jump off the page at you, is Bochum versus Hertha. Mm. Oh, yeah, they came up. They came up last season. Now, once upon a time, they were you know semi regulars in the Bundesliga, but they've been down in this fight the Bundesliga for some time. Hertha are, as we know, a total bin fire and have been for the last eighteen months. And I wonder if, if Bochum beat Hertha. I think the Hertha manager might be the the first casualty mm. of the season. I think he might go. So that's one to potentially look out for because if the Bochum can beat Hertha, I think panic. They always might start mm. over there in, in Berlin. We've also got Greta as well playing Wolfsburg. I was going to say um, Wolfsburg, obviously, to a great start with Mark Van Bommel as well. Um, do you think he's going to extend that winning run as well, Craig? Yeah, you would think so. Greta fourth are you know, they're essentially the Salonitana or the Bundesliga. They, they shouldn't <laughs> really be in that league. They're going to be cannon for that. However, Greta fourth have taken our very own Cedric Itten of this parish. Uh, Ranger striker mm. on loan for the season, so I might watch that one with a, a bit more interest than I would have normally have done. But yeah, you have to fancy Wolfsburg to extend their start to the season. Leverkusen yeah, exactly. play Dortmund, by the way. Just, just yeah. Leverkusen Dortmund, yeah, yeah, mm, yeah. That would be, be very interesting. And Erling yeah. Haaland is on fire. If he wasn't already, he is another hatchet yeah. for Norway um, during this break. So he's he's not going to slow down. Um, yeah, Dortmund, Dortmund look okay. Dortmund look okay. I think they'll, they should beat Leverkusen as well. Dortmund just needs to find a defence. That's all I can say about Dortmund. Yeah, say that yeah. about five years. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right, we'll move into Serie A. So, uh, yeah, you did touch on it, Craig, but Salatanana uh, signed Frank Ribery, uh, yeah, 38-year-old yeah. Frank Ribery. So he'll be joining Simi in the attacking run, I'm sure, up front. Um, but, yeah, I did also notice Victor Oshemen has had his free match suspension reduced. So now he'll be in frame to play Juventus. Um, there's a lot of rumours about Andre Berlotti as well, potentially where he could end up. I know the transfer window has ended, but for some reason that's come up. Um, but yeah, I've seen in terms of matches anyway, Sampdoria versus Inter, AC Milan versus Lazio and Roma, your very own Craig Roma versus Sassuolo. So um, yeah, some juicy games, right? Oh, there is. And just to touch on Andrea Bellotti, he's like the Italian Harry Kane. He is, <laughs> he is clearly too good for Torino. Clearly. And has been for a long, long time. And everyone's just saying, please leave Torino and go and win some trophies somewhere, please. Mm. Um, Juventus were sniffing around him. I know they are obviously Turin rivals, but when it was quite clear that Ronaldo was leaving, they were sniffing around him. Uh, and so were into Milan before they got Jekyll. Yeah. So he is primed. And I would wonder if one of the, the so-called challenges are struggling a little bit in January. I wonder if one of them might pull the trigger and just get mm. him in because he is guaranteed gold, Bellotti, big fan of him. 
But you're right, some massive games as well. And Milan versus Lazio on Sunday night. The Lazio have obviously started the season really, really well. Um, but that's their first, first big test. And if they can go to San Siro, get a result there, then you're probably starting to look at, you know what, Lazio might might do something this year. We're talking about mm-hmm. Jose Mourinho. It just shows you the, the Mourinho factor in Serie A because the, the 7.45 game on a Sunday night in Italy, that's their prime game. That's like their half past four Super Sunday. And you've got a weekend where you've got Napoli versus Juventus, Sampdoria versus Inter, and Milan Lazio. And the Italians have chosen to put Roma versus Sassuolo in the prime time. <laughs> you can only imagine now, Sassuolo are a good side. They're almost like Diet Atalanta. Yeah. Exciting team. But that is just pure Jose Mourinho. That That is prime time. And that's that's what he does. That's what he brings. But yeah, we've, we've talked to another pod. The Italians have still got this, this mythor in Mourinho that He's this yeah. figure that, you know, the last Italian coach to win a proper treble as he did with Inter in 2010. Inter so, Milan, Mourinho, basically. Yeah, right? that, that Inter, that Inter and the Samuel teams. He's still got this aura that he doesn't have perhaps in, in any other country in Europe. Um, but yeah, I'm just, I'm still on the, the Jose and Roma train until it comes to an abrupt end. Quick word, Zach, on Juventus. Um, they're not doing too great, uh, thanks to Chesney, I'm sure. Um, but no, uh, in all honesty, uh, Legri's got a big task, big game against Napoli, obviously. Could you see them getting a win, or do you think it'll be another potential defeat there? I could definitely see. I think I think this is a game that could really go either way. Um, I'm very glad, though, that, that Osiman has had his suspension revoked. Mm. I mean... It was a dumb decision by him to react. I mean, that's <laughs> something that they tell you as what a six-year-old, seven-year-old, like don't react because the referee yeah. is not going to see what happened first. They're only going to see what happens next. But so hopefully he learns that lesson. But at, it, at the end of the day, it was still a very harsh uh, decision to send him off, I thought. So I'm glad he, he'll be available. Um, but yeah, as you mentioned, you know, Juventus definitely struggling a lot early on. Um, and, you know, without, with Ronaldo gone, with some new guys going through, it's it definitely seems like a bit of a transitional season for them. Um, but I do think that they have enough quality to to compete for the Scudetto. But you know, very poor start so far, um, and they they really need to turn things around. Um, it'll be interesting to see if Moise Kane is in the lineup uh, or if he's mm. coming off the bench. I I would probably expect him to to start on the bench, even though he had a good game um, against Lithuania. Uh, but yeah, I think this is a game that could really go either way. Um, Juventus and Napoli, though, for me, alongside Inter, uh, should should definitely be competing with the Scudetto. I think this is going to be one of the most open uh, races we've seen in a while because there's really no like like if I gun to my head, I would probably pick Juventus. But it is pretty mm. like Juventus, Inter, Napoli. I could really see either of them competing. I don't think that Lazio have have the depth to compete. For the Scudetto, maybe they could do something nice and, you know, get top four under Sari. But uh, I think those are probably the three teams that will be challenging for, for the Scudetto up until the end of the season. And Andy, our good friends, the Anglo-Italian pod, will be loving the fact that we're talking about Inter Milan. Um, Inter Milan coming into it a lot more. Uh, good results, good start so far. I mean, do you think they'll uh, have a good second half of this part of this break, I suppose? Yeah, I think... I think there's quite a lot of hyperbole over the on um, over the on pitch problems. I mean, don't mm. get me wrong, there are quite a few on pitch problems. Obviously, the, uh, the Chinese ownership and the needing to raise funds, but they've still got the core. You know, although they lost Hakimi, although they lost Kaku, they still got the core of the team. 
that turned mm. in so well last season. You know, Gecko, despite his age, will will, will score goals at um, at Serie A level. You know, you've got Bastoni at centre back, Nico Barella in midfield still. You know, Hadanovic still goes stronger, like 37, 38. You know, it's still a very good team. And I think um I think a lot of it would depend on uh, who gets into their stride uh, mid sea you know, over the Christmas break and um going into going into the winter months because I think it's a bit difficult to tell at the moment because realistically we're only three or four games in. If you look at the games into have played, you could argue they should, you know, against Genoa and Kalahari, they should be winning all of those and they have done. I think the real test for them will come when you play the teams that could be a bit more tricky. You know, when they play Juve, the Milan derby, um, you know, Lazio and Roma, that's when you'll get a bit more of a feel as to whether they're up to the challenge. Um, I think it'd be a very close title race. I don't see a scenario where you see Juve winning it by, you know, 15, 20 points. I might still win it, but I don't mm. think it'd be by a big margin, if that makes sense. Definitely. And Craig, we might as well move on to the Premier League. So, um, yeah, what are the pick of the games from the Premier League this weekend? Uh, well, for me and Andy will be pleased. I think the the one to absolutely watch is Man United Newcastle um, for, for obvious reasons. Ronaldo coming back. I would love to know what the odds are on first goal scorer or to bag a hat-trick. Um, I'd be interested to see what, what lineup Oli goes with. How does he fit Ronaldo into this team? Um, you know, the thought of Rashford, Fernandez. Um, Jaden Sancho and Ronaldo's a front four is just terrifying. Um, I'm really looking forward to seeing to seeing what Ronaldo can do. Um, that's probably the pick of the games um, for me. I like Leicester Man City <coughs> on Saturday evening as well. That'd be a tight game. And then of course we need to keep an eye out on on Arsenal. Um, I'm not going to go into I'm not going to go into Arsenal again and dig them out. But that game against Norwich is worth watching because if they don't if they don't take control of that game and, and score early, that the Emirates could be pretty toxic. Yeah, definitely. I was also looking Leicester City versus Man City and we've got also Leeds and Liverpool on the Sunday night as well. So that reminds me of the younger days when they were competing quite a lot in the Premier League. So be interesting to see that with a crowd as well. But yeah, Zach, Zach quick word on Arsenal then. We've <laughs> slated them quite a lot on this pod. Um, yeah, what would you make of what Arteta's trying to do or is he actually trying to achieve anything from there? <laughs> Yeah, I think um, I don't. I don't have the exact numbers. I'm pretty sure Arsenal and Norwich. I think two of the only three teams to have not picked up a single point so far. I think Wolves uh, have have not gotten a point as well. Mm. Um, it has been a pretty terrible start for them. I'll be honest with you. I don't think that. Um, I don't think it makes sense to sack him this month um, because, frankly, if you're going to sack him, you sack him after. You miss out on champion on, on European football for the first time in 25 years. You don't back him with like, I don't know, a hundred million. I don't even know how much they spent. They spent a ridiculous amount on transfer fees. Um, and you know, a lot of risk involved there. I think I personally think that the money could have been spent better elsewhere, but it's clear that, you know, they were backing his choices. Uh, they're behind him, but I'll be honest. He's, he, he really has, not done anything to to convince me that he's the right manager for Arsenal. Um, yes, you have you know the FA Cup and those like two games where Arsenal for once looked like a defensively solid side, and then and then you scroll through with like a few more months, and then oh, it's same old Arsenal again, if not worse. 
Um, so uh, yeah, I, I just think that he, looking at his tactics, looking at what he's doing, I, I don't really see much. I don't really see much in the way of a plan, tactically speaking. Mm. Um, I think that you know he he's a manager who who doesn't really know how to how to counteract uh, top sides and know how how to set up against them. Um, I think there was definitely some hope early on that okay, you know we're we're seeing some glimpses of like you know a Mourinho style coach who's who's pragmatic who can adapt. Uh, but that just hasn't been the case either last season or the start of this season. You know, I think that, um, I mean, looking at the Manchester City game, for example, y- yes, you you expect Arsenal to lose to City, but like the 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 way they set up with pretty much like one midfielder in in Jaka <laughs> and granted Jaka, right? And and then looking at like the other the other decisions that he's made, like. I mean, keeping Xhaka around when you've got like genuine interest from Roma, like I just, I just think that's you know, and and that's not just Arteta. Okay, that's Edu. That's a lot of other people who are involved. But like you know, I just don't get it with with Xhaka, Honestly, man, I, I I had high hopes for him when he joined from Gladbach, um, and you know, I supported him because uh, because I think he was providing something different, but. But really, just out at this point, I think the negatives outweigh the positives, and uh, it's a bit like the sunken cost fallacy. You know, you sunk, you sink so much money to this, then you, you decide to like ride it out a little more. It's kind of like when you buy like a, a broken car, and like instead of trading it in, you just keep on riding it, opening it, it magically converts. And for me, like that's not just Jaka; that's a lot of other players. You know, um, I just think that like. You know, for example, Ainsley Maitland Niles. That's a player who they could have easily gotten, I think, 15 million from, which is not it's not great, but it's a decent fee for a player who, you know, isn't doesn't have mm. like plan isn't isn't a key part of Arteta's plans. And then you reject that, and then you know, a year later, you're not even letting him leave on loan to Everton. Like I, I just think that frankly, Arteta has not shown enough either as a manager as well as a man manager. Um, and I think that's something, the last part is, is something that a lot of people underrate. You know, I think that was one of the yeah. best things about Ferguson during his time at, at United, you know, not just, not just his tactics, but knowing how to manage all the egos and, you know, keep them, keep them in, in motion. I would argue that's one of the, that was one of the best things about Zidane during his time at Madrid, you know, get, keeping them balanced. And frankly, I just don't really see that with, with Arteta. I don't really see him being in charge of the de- dressing room. It just doesn't seem like players are buying in and uh and and clicking on all cylinders so yeah frankly um i think that arteta i i don't see him being arsenal's manager this time next year um i don't know when he's getting the sack and you know maybe maybe arsenal decide to hold it out and you know sunken call cost fallacy again but frankly i just i'll be honest i i really am not convinced by him at all I think he's very naive, and I think that he's not the only reason for Arsenal's problems, but I definitely don't think that he's part of the solution either. So, 
you know, we'll see, we'll see what happens. It's funny, it's funny getting your your point of view on it because obviously with our friends over at the Anglo Italian Board, we get roasted for being completely biased about the situation. <laughs> <laughs> and for you to come on and basically say exactly what we've been saying over the past few weeks from a completely neutral, different bloody continent point of view, <laughs> uh, it's quite it's quite refreshing. <laughs> it's like we're not the crazy ones; they are. <laughs> uh, but. Uh, yeah, you're right. I think as a man manager, I think there's a few things with Flo Arteta which doesn't quite sit right. I think he's tried to give it the whole Guardiola thing. You know, I pet Guardiola, you do as I say, or you fucking leave, you know, with all the hands flailing around everywhere. Um, aware, but he can get away with that because he's one of the best coaches in world football. Uh, so you could get away with that stuff. And also, you had, you know, Guardia had a huge pedigree as a player, where I think it's just basically, um, you know, Arteta's just a, like a little version of, um, <laughs> you know, Pep Guardiola. It kind of, you know, it kind of looks the same and sounds the same, but it, it's not the same. Um, you know, I think that's one thing, you know, with man management, that's one thing that, for example, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, who is often compared to, does really, really well. For what he lacks tactically, he is a very good man manager to manage the egos that are Man United, and that's kind of where the difference between the two clubs have arisen. But yeah, I can see Arteta getting sacked by Christmas, to be honest. I think mm. Craig and Adam probably agree with me on that one as well. I think it's probably going to be sooner, but yeah, yeah I was going to just serious. add to that. Uh, Zach, thanks for the flashback about Granite Xhaka. I think the qualifiers, <laughs> I forgot about that tackle and you brought it back up. So I just remember that vividly and how bad that tackle was. Um, so, yeah, um, before we go into the end of it, Craig, how are Rangers shaping up? Who have they got this weekend? Uh, we're away at St Johnston uh, this Saturday afternoon. But for those of you who don't watch Scottish football, the Johnston are, are no mugs. Actually, they, they played in this season's Europa League qualifiers. Um, a couple of good results against Galatasaray of all teams. Uh, and they also won both domestic cups last year, so the League Cup and the Scottish Cup. So um, what on paper, from outside looking in, you might think, also oh, Johnston, cannon fodder, but they're actually a really, really decent sort of Premier League side. So that'll be a tougher game up in Perth on Saturday. But I'm um, feeling good about it. We do have Yanis Hadji, though, uh, who tested positive on international duty for Romania. Yeah. Um, so he will miss the game. Because he got because he pinged in North Macedonia, he has to isolate for 10 days before he can fly back. Then he has to isolate <laughs> okay. for 10 days once he gets back. That's a month, basically. Uh, at least the rest of September, which is uh, which is incredibly unfortunate. But we still should have should have enough to beat St. Johnston on Saturday. Nice. So we'll move into this final question, which was sent in from Blood Red Cop. That is a Liverpool account asking us, if we had to build a Super League, what teams from around the world would you select? At first, I had to kind of pull myself out and say, he doesn't mean the actual Super League that was proposed. And I kind of thought nostalgically, wouldn't it be great if we had the old Champions League format where we had the champions of every country come together? Um, but guys your thoughts what would you have as your kind of super league andy, yeah, I, would... Go on, andy. I think i quite like your idea of having the champions of like every single country just playing each other um you know and if you wanted to add in a couple of bit of glitz and glamour added the champions from like brazil or argentina <laughs> i'll bring them over to the champions league or something like that uh, <laughs> obviously if it's a super league around the world you, you, you can it'd be i think it'd be quite cool um, 
but yeah, I think that'll be the best way of doing it. Realistically, a proper Champions League. Mm. Craig, yeah, I totally agree. I would have the top sixteen teams in the FIFA rankings park the, the nonsense of the rankings themselves yeah. to one side. But take the FIFA rankings one to sixteen and pick the champions from each of those countries in a knockout tournament. I think that would be blockbuster. And Zach. I mean, I, I definitely like that idea as well, but I personally, I would love to see like a tournament of just a bunch of fallen giants in football, like, I don't know, getting like Nottingham Forest, uh, okay. Alster, Kaiser oh, Stratton, Ham- Hamburg, yeah. Hamburg, uh, Belenich, like not the one that's playing in the Primera, the one that's playing in Portugal's third division. Oh, no, in, in Portugal. The one that's playing Deportivo, in... Deportivo La Coruña. Deportivo La Coruña, for <laughs> sure. Yeah. I Deportivo, like I'm trying to think, Auxerre, uh, um, Palermo, Palermo, Livorno maybe, Livorno, yeah. um, I'm trying to think who else, who else in England, Arsenal, <laughs> <laughs> we'll be Arsenal. going into Spurs yeah. soon, yeah. Yeah. no, they've got to giant state, this is the first well, place, well, four, years, four years ago they said Rangers, but luckily they're back, you could get like one of the guys from like one of those teams, like I don't know, one of the guys on like the Deportivo team, like getting like I don't know, Mauro Silva on to coach it, and like I don't know, maybe getting like um, like I'm trying to think. Well, so you gotta get maybe like Bolton Wanderers and get like somebody on on that Bolton team. I don't know. Shokoyev, Freddie Bowie. Maybe maybe Sunderland. I guess I I know they made it back to the championship, but like I don't know. I don't. Bolton or, or Sunderland, I guess. Uh, I don't know. I just think a bunch of like fallen giants would be like really fun to watch. Like almost like, you know, it's it's not quite like one of those charity games where you see all these like washed up retired <laughs> players, but it almost seems like that, you know, metaphorically, like getting like Hamburg, Nottingham Forest, um, Kaiser Slotten, I think. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Blackburn, right? Like Blackburn Rovers. Oh, wow. Maybe. Oh, wow. Yeah. Sheffield uh, Wednesday. <laughs> we're going into the dark days now. Yeah. Right? So you're just picking teams that just won picking stuff it. in the 70s, 80s, and 90s yeah. and bringing it back. Like It's basically no. like FIFA, isn't it? When they have their 70s oh, yeah. team or 80s team. What you've got to do is just get sponsored by Capital Gold. And you're, <laughs> <laughs> and you're sorted. Capital Gold, for reference, Zach, is like a, a station over here where they just play like 60s, 70s, and 80s music and you yeah. know, make old people feel like they're 20 again. That's the best work of some Golden oldies. Yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> but I see the turnout opening, the opening the fucking ceremony for this tournament. I would love to see that. No, it's like, I mean, yeah, you could get like um, so many, so many interesting teams like. I forgot there was one player. Red Star Belgrade. Red, like, yeah, I, well, Red Star is still the the biggest team in Serbia, so I don't know if you could really because they're still going to be playing in Europe, I think. Yeah, so I, don't, I don't know. Star of Bucharest. You get so, An- Anji Machalaka, who are like the richest team in the world for like two <laughs> yeah. years. Or well, those are guys like, like Samueto. Yeah, Russia. they got. I think yeah, they, didn't they, they get William? Anzi, Anzi. Was it yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure yeah. they got Willian for like a few months before he got into Chelsea, right? Didn't he? Wow. Yeah. I think that was 
That was a blast from the past. Roberto Carlos ended up over there right. as well. Yeah. Uh, I think that was a I think that was a point where Sam Galetto was the best played player in the world yeah. at that point. And yeah. when he first joined, um, he apparently was given like a 1.2 million pound Bugatti Bayron. I think it all went to shit when apparently the owner of Angie, whatever they are, um, I'm going to attempt to pronounce it, uh, had like something like £5 billion of his value wiped overnight for some reason or other. Mm. That was basically the end of that. It was a really interesting story with that club. I remember Definitely. back then, like, I think Eto and, like, Dario Conca were, like, the two highest. <laughs> like, maybe two of, like, the – that was, like, another one. I think, like, Dario Conca, just, like, this random Argentine player, like, going to China and getting, like, like getting like a massive salary as well. Well, Florentino Perez, if you want to steal Zach's <laughs> idea, just make sure you credit it to him as well. So uh... – <laughs> But further to that, um, thank you to the listener and viewers at home. Uh, make sure you subscribe to our channel as well as our social media channel platforms as well. So Instagram at the Hopeless Wanderer podcast and on Twitter at Hopeless Pod. Without any further ado, thanking you, Zach, for turning up on our pods. Um, for the benefit of listener and viewers, where can they get you and catch you more importantly? Thank you so much for having me on. It was a pleasure. Really have to on again. Um, so my my Twitter at is Zach Lowy, Z-A-C-H-L-O-W-Y. You can also find me on BTL Vid, uh, my website, Breaking the Lines, um, as well as my weekly podcast, Cortalinhas, that where we discuss uh, where we discuss Portuguese football. Definitely check that out um, on Spotify, Apple, and all major podcast podcast platforms. Definitely. And I did accidentally click on one of your videos <laughs> seeing you speak pure Portuguese, which I was so impressed. So I'm not going to try and do the similar with Polish because I'm sure you guys would need subtitles for that. Um, but yeah, Craig, you're going to be missing us next week. You're off on your holler, Bob. So um, yeah, you're going down the English Riviera, aren't you? Yeah, I'm going to the, the southwest of England with the, the girlfriend and the dog for a week. So I'm just going to finish up on this podcast and go and pack because I leave tomorrow and uh, in true fashion, I haven't packed a single thing, so that's where I'm going <laughs> next week. Yep. Classic. Well, I hope you enjoy your week down there. Andy, thanks for being on the pod and giving us your England views as well. I'm sure that it will be coming home at some point. I just don't know when that's going to happen. But more important, potentially, I'm not going to say it though. But more importantly, listener and viewers, hope you have a great week or weekend whenever you're listening to us. But for now, thank you, and we'll see you at the next episode. Take care. <laughs>